You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. Second City is excited to work with Amazon as part of their new and exciting app called AMP. AMP is a home where anyone can create live radio-style shows alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including ours. Join the Second City live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central Time for our show, Second City Public Radio. SCPR is an interactive weekly lampoon of all things public radio. Each week, our host and an ever-expanding panel of Second City characters open up the lines to listeners from around the U.S. to ask questions and offer us opinions on a slew of wide-reaching subjects. Download the app, and don't forget to tune in. AMP. Thursdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. So today's pod is with Eric Barker, who we've had on the show previously. He's the author of the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Barking Up the Wrong Tree, uh, which is also the title of his wildly successful blog. He's got a really good new book that's called Plays Well with Others, The Surprising Science Behind Why Everything You Know About Relationships is Mostly Wrong. He's got great stories. He's got underlying science. Terrific guest. Enjoy the pod. Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at the Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting DS And. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. Eric Barker, welcome to the show. Great to be here. In the introduction to your new book, you talk about the skills that hostage negotiators use to be successful in their jobs. And chief among those skills is active listening, which I suspect most people would say is a skill that translates across all domains. But you offer that there is a particular place where active active listening doesn't work, right? Yeah, it was pretty funny because I I got to sit in with the 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 uh, NYPD hostage negotiation team and we're using active listening in these like extremely professional stress-inducing simulations and you know active listening has worked very well for them over the decades and I'm hanging out with the negotiators afterwards and they they just kind of dropped. Oh, by the way, you know, that that won't work with your spouse. And I was like, what? I'm like, this This is, I thought I had the skeleton key to human communication here. Right. And they they said that, you know, it, it was, as soon as they said it, it made intuitive sense where they yes. were like in a, negoti- in a hostage negotiation or even in a, a therapy situation, you're playing the part of a third party, you know, mm. and you're not the one 
causing the problems. You're this kind of outsider. So it's in those situations, it's actually much easier to do this active listening. Uh-huh. Summarize, mirror, you know, but when the, the, when the problems are directed at you, you're the one who didn't take out the trash. You're the one who that conflict is very different. It's, it's not that active listening in theory doesn't work in those mm-hmm. situations. It's just that the research shows people can't do it because they're the one being attacked. And it's just, it's just too hard. So in, in marriages, active listening, while a great concept, most people can't manage it. Yeah, I, I, I love, I mean, it's a great, it's a great piece and I, I get totally why you open with it. And when I shared that with like colleagues and my wife, the same thing, they took a beat and they're like, oh my God, you're right. And I think about even in work situations, why this is important, which is, yeah, active listening is, is, is probably good in a lot of work situations. I don't know in a performance review uh, that that's going to be the same thing because of the, just what you're talking about, the, all the emotion that goes into that, that moment. Exactly. I mean, when, when, when the, when the conflict is directed at you, you know, it's a, it's very difficult to kind of keep your emotions, you know, in check. If you can manage it, great. But, you know, that's, that's, that's one thing we've been recommended, which uh, I think only, only the, only the calmest of us can manage. That's right. So it's funny, I'm working on the proposal for my follow-up book to Yes And, and I was talking to my publisher, and she asked, at its essence, what is the book trying to say? And I answered that we don't do this alone, that if the human experiment is going to continue, it can't be blocked or canceled or muted, and that improvisation is a practice in building the skills to navigate through difference and change and uncertainty. And there's science, of course, to back all that up. And this felt like a really complimentary idea to what you're getting at in this new book. Oh, no, ab- absolutely. I mean, so much of conversation is improvisational. I mean, people, yeah. you know, the other person is the other person. I've, I've tried giving them a script in advance. They <laughs> it doesn't just work. follow it. They, they, <laughs> don't, they don't listen. I, I mm-hmm. tell them I, I've, I'm, I'm going to call the director. This is really an issue They're they're But no, seriously, a conversation is always improvisational, you know, and also I think the kind of, you know, the underlying theory that improvisation works by where not negating, trying to build on, yeah. you know, that is a fundamental i mean that's that's part of active listening you know and i think that's that's fundamental you know that's that's basic to to not be negating that comes across as defensiveness uh and i think i'd love you to talk through the grant study out of harvard because that's a really important study and i've seen it cited in some other books but it kind of sets the premise for the rest of the book yeah basically the grant study at at harvard you know basically followed a group of men from their undergrad years uh, it's still ongoing, you know, yeah. so you're like, this is literally some of these men, most have passed away, but, you know, some are in their 80s and they have been collecting information, you know, on these men, their personalities, their lives, you know, divorce habits, you know, for it's a longitudinal study for their entire life. And it it's so fascinating because, you know, there have been multiple books written because you know, a few decades go by. Oh, we got the insights. And then a few more decades go by. Oh, we got more insights. And oh, some of them contradict the prior insights. And it's amazing. But when they spoke to uh, George Valiant, who led the study for, for probably the longest period uh, of time, they were like, what did you learn? And you would imagine that, again, this has filled multiple books. And yet when they asked him, he only responded with one sentence. And he said that the only thing that matters in your life is your relationships to other people. And mm-hmm. it was, it was that simple. And I've, I've read a number of the books I've written about them on my blog. 
And you just see this through line through just how much, you know, through ups, through downs, through whatever, you know, the relationships were so powerful and so predictive on how these men's lives turned out. Yeah. Uh, and and as you talk about in the book, too, it's it's all the different relationships. We're not just talking about family. In fact, sometimes friends are, are more important. And one of the things that was interesting, too, well, I'm going to ask you a question. Um, can you judge a book by its cover? Uh, we are terrible at this. Um, yes. You know, it's it's if I am a huge, huge fan of the uh, BBC show Sherlock. I mm-hmm. was a fan of Sherlock Holmes. I was I was a fan of even the TV Same. show House MD, which was yep. based on Sherlock. And we are never going to be Sherlock Holmes passively, you know, reading people from body language and, you know, m- um, small expressions on their faces. And now. It's the truth is Nicholas Epley, who uh, is a, a professor at University of Chicago. Basically, when we're trying to read the thoughts and feelings of others with strangers, we are accurate about 20 percent of the time with friends, 30 percent of the time with spouses, 35 percent of the time. So anytime you think, you know, what's going on in your spouse's head, two thirds of the time you're wrong. And, you know, we can do things to get better, but not by much. The biggest insight I came away from was that the biggest gains in being able to read others doesn't come from improving our own skills. It comes from making others more readable, getting them to send a stronger signal. Uh, I don't know if we talked about this the first time you were on the podcast, but um, uh, I co-led an initiative at the University of Chicago with my friend Heather Caruso called the Second Science Project, named uh, by Nick Epley. Uh, wow, Nick, was, wow. Nick was our sort of chief scientist. So what we did was take a lot of his research. So, so for example, one of the things that he, he writes about and has studied is the fact that human beings are reluctant to share details of themselves, thinking that th- that's kind of self-disclosure as other people aren't interested in. When, when you do that, you move to connection more quickly. So literally, my wife, Anne, uh, made a bespoke improv exercise called Universal Unique, where one person sort of describes something banal like grocery shopping. How, how do people grocery shop? And then after they do that for about a minute, we then ask them to describe how they grocery shop. And the <laughs> difference is immense. It's funnier. You're finding these little quirks. People are enjoying it. And that's an exercise that's proven to be really useful in a variety of contexts. Well, and that ties in with a, a lot of the other literature. Uh, Arthur yeah. Aaron at uh, University of Stony Brook, you know, there's, there's so much research they're showing, you know, making good friends, deep friends. Jeff Hall did a lot of this work that takes tens or literally hundreds of hours uh, to to make a, a deep connection with somebody. Yet Arthur Aaron managed to make that happen in 45 minutes. He made people feel like lifelong friends. And, you know, it wasn't through some like eldritch alchemy sort of thing. It was literally just exactly what you're kind of talking about, which mm-hmm. is you know, asking questions, getting people to open up, be a little bit more vulnerable, but just going deeper and people taking turns going back and forth. You know, I talk about, you know, well, you know, who would I from any person who I've ever lived, who would I like to have dinner with and why? And then you give yours and going back and forth 45 minutes that produced the equivalent of a lifelong friendship. Yeah, it's 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 amazing. And and you know, uh, when you read this literature, you, you, you have to wonder at a certain point, how do we even get to feed and clean ourselves? It is like so <laughs> depressing. And then you also realize things like, well, let's talk about like profiling, right? Is, is that a thing? Uh, 
Uh, no, it doesn't work. It's pseudoscience. It's the 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 uh, what was it? U UK police uh, looked at all the times they'd used profiling, and they came to the conclusion that profiling was effective in two point seven percent of criminal cases. Uh, the reason why an American like me is talking about UK data is because the FBI doesn't release data on how right. effective profiling is. But there's been numerous studies. Uh, college chemistry majors uh, produce profiles that seem as valid as those of professional profilers. You know, it's it's that basically we, we, we tell ourselves stories about people and those stories, we tend to latch onto them. The funny thing is that the greatest parallel, you know, with profiling is actually astrology and cold reading. You know, it's the mm -hmm. same, it's the same thing. We say these general, vague, base, often positive, uh, positive statements and people latch onto them and then confirmation bias kicks in. People want it to be true and they start looking for things to confirm it. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned bias because I want to move there next. So I was in a, uh, a series of workshops with some fairly prominent medical folk, um, and I th this doctor was outraged when I said bias is neither good nor bad. It it is. And he's like, no, bias is bad. And I'm like, no, it isn't. <laughs> you talk about this in the book. Yeah, I mean that that's that's the thing. Now, obviously, you know, like you know, you know, sexism, racism. We're we're yeah. not advocating anything like that. But no. you know, a lot of our intuitions, you know, are beneath the rational. You know, we start making judgments and assessing people, you know, uh, in milliseconds unconsciously. And so, judging a book by its cover, you know, I I kind of update the phrase in the book. I I say that you know it's not a matter of not judging a book by its cover because we do immediately. We can't help yeah. it. It's a matter of trying to revise our judgments. But the thing is that. On first impression, now while reading people's thoughts and feelings who we normally deal with, we're terrible at that. The funny thing is that on first impressions, when first meeting someone, we're actually surprisingly good. We're not far from perfect, but we're roughly accurate about 70% of the time. You know, there's a lot of research on thin slicing where just watching somebody do their job, no sound, on video, with just a couple minutes, we are roughly like 70% accurate in determining is this person competent? Are they good at it? We can assess a number of personality traits, you know, very quickly. Now, again, 70% is not 100. I don't think we, nobody would be happy if their kid came home with all 70s, you know, on their report card. But that said, this is way above chance. And some of those things are kind of hardwired assumptions into, you know, into us, which, you know, can be pretty effective, though not perfectly effective. Uh, you, you don't really go there in the book, but I, I, I was reminded of this because I had a conversation uh, earlier this week with Heather Caruso, who left University of Chicago and is at UCLA, and she's the Associate Dean of Diversity and Inclusion. And she was talking to me about a technique that they're using in some workshops, and it was developed at University of Michigan called Intergroup Dialogue. Have you heard of this? No. So it, so I think you, you've probably seen the research as I have that most DE&I training doesn't work. Um, that it's not effective because people just go into their fear and shame brain. Um, and this uh, inner group dialogue is effective because it splits people into teams and it's self-led. So everyone has a chance to sort of write down in a packet of paper the various things that they where they maybe feel uncomfortable. Like, are you uncomfortable with gender pronouns? Great. Let you, we can talk about that. And then everyone has a chance to lead and, and also follow. Uh, also a very improv thing. But again, it goes back to this thing, which, which you point out over and over again, which is just get, get talk with people <laughs> to like reserve the judgment and have conversations. And you can potentially have a lot of really good outcomes.
Yeah, I mean, this is really critical in in marriage because you know what you what you consistently see. I, I talk about is that people think that fighting is going to end marriages, and certainly it can, but only forty percent of the time do marriages end due to shouting matches. Usually, they they end due to lack of communication, where people there's something of an issue with they don't raise it. And then instead of having a conversation with their partner, they start having a conversation with their self and they start making assumptions about mm-hmm. why the other person is behaving like this. And almost inevitably, those assumptions over time start to go negative. And, right. you know, that shifts from the the ideal, idealization of love, which is which is technical positive sentiment override to what is called negative sentiment override. And that's when we mm-hmm. start assuming that our 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 partner is is out to get us or causing problems, you you know, it's uh, Albert Ellis referred to it as devilizing. Uh, so mm-hmm. we, we need to talk to people. We need to hear what they have to say, because otherwise we're going to make assumptions. And as we know from the research, that's not generally going to be very accurate. Yeah. The phrase that you have, which is a terrific one, is no one thinks they're the problem and that's the problem. Exactly. Um, I mean, we we everybody think, oh, well, I know. And it's like, oh, that's really hard because here on Earth, people don't know what you're thinking unless you tell them. And, you know, it's it's we 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 need to clarify things because, you know, it's that that opening up uh, as John Gottman, the, the you know, leading researcher uh, on marriage and love. This guy is amazing. I'm, I'm going to get a full back tattoo of him. Uh, <laughs> he is like fantastic. But what he found that surprises a lot of people is that complaining, you know, is not problematic for a relationship. In fact, it's a positive. Mm-hmm. You know, what is the problem is criticism. Complaining is when you raise an issue. Criticism is when you raise an issue and you say it's you make it personal. You right. say this is because you're you didn't take out the trash and it's because you're a bad person. That's right. You know, complaining in itself is actually a positive because you raise the issues and that prevents you getting caught in that death spiral in your head of making us negative assumptions about your partner. So complaining good, criticism bad. Gottman has a great line where because a lot of people think, oh, you know, we don't want to fight. That's going to end the relationship. But couples that don't fight, they don't resolve things. And this is shown in the data. So Gottman has a great line where he says, you know, if you've been in a long term relationship and you've never had a fight, please do that immediately. Right, right. Uh, I want you. So I'm a lifelong soccer fan, uh, but I had never heard of Carlos Kaiser. Uh, Can you tell us about this guy? Yes, Carlos Kaiser is probably uh, one of the most accomplished liars to ever live. The <laughs> guy managed to play professional soccer for decades, and uh, you know he just didn't. He wanted to be famous, he wanted to be successful, he wanted to be a celebrity, but he didn't want to play the game. And he managed to perpetuate this lie that he was a phenomenal soccer player for years and years and years. And it's stunning. You can go to his Wikipedia entry. Never scored a goal. Played in very few games. Uh, he would just, you know, he would, he was, he was a manipulator and he was incredibly charming. The other players loved him. They kind of supported him. Uh, he, they, he would get a trial contract with the team, uh, you know, which would say, Oh, I need to get in shape. So they, they wouldn't have him play initially. Then he'd immediately go out and fake an injury. He got so good at faking. injury. he once had a dentist write a doctor's note that said that, uh, he couldn't, his legs weren't working properly because of his teeth. He <laughs> went beyond and above and and it was crazy, but mm-hmm. like he he never actually got 
caught. Like, you know, it's just it's only after his career that all of this has come to light. And, you know, now he's celebrated. So it, it just shows you just how amazing some people can be at not telling the truth. And I think you, what you're talking about is less about Carlos Kaiser and more about everyone who was around him who went, just went along with it, which is, quite frankly, something we're seeing in our national culture and politics right now. It's it's kind of it's kind of terrifying, you know, that that we see that this this can happen. And so, you know, in the book, I, I get into the fact, you know, of just just how much I mean, you know, college students lie in about a third of conversations. Adults lie in about one in five. Uh, you know, we we, uh, we 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 lie most frequently to mom, uh, but we tell the biggest lies to our spouse. And mm-hmm. it's uh, it's it's pretty it's pretty amazing we have we have a lot of misconceptions about lies how to detect them and how to deal with them uh i want to talk about friends and friendship and this i remember turning to my wife you know like five years ago and sort of saying it's so weird because i had just turned 50 i'm 55 and um i made new new really close friends and uh i'm like why is this happening now but of course why it's happening now is I'm an empty nester. Uh, you know, there, there's I've, I've changed conditions in my life because you talk in the book about the thirty. Your thirties are your decade where your friendships actually go to die. Yeah, it's usually in the thirties is when most people, uh, you know, have their wedding, gather all the friends together, and promptly never see them again. Yeah. You know, it's, <laughs> it's it's like it's it's a tricky thing because you know I talk about in the book. You know, most of the stuff we know about friendship comes from Dale Carnegie, and 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 what's funny is that the majority of what Carnegie had to say uh, has been validated by right. social science research. The one thing he got wrong was he he said try and take the perspective of the other person, be in their shoes, and like we know, reading what's on other people's minds, we're not good at it. But everything yeah. else pretty accurate. But Carnegie's work is really only good for the beginning of relationships. It's not for deepening friendships, and for deepening friendships, we need to display costly signals. We need to show, you know, the other person that we are invested in this. And one of those two, to your point, uh, is time because time is scarce. And if you make time for someone consistently, that says that, you know, they're meaningful to you. And as we get older, when we become adults, you know, time, time is really difficult to come by. It becomes an even more precious resource, but that makes it an even more powerful demonstration that somebody is, is meaningful to us. Uh, talk to us about the beautiful mess effect, that phenomenon. Yeah. So the first costly signal I talked about was time. The second costly signal is that vulnerability is, you know, opening up to people. And we're afraid of this, understandably, because, you know, talking about your weaknesses, your fears, your concerns, this information could be used against you. You could be made to look silly. You know, the other person could, could you know, could, you know, just consider you less than them. But the truth is, the majority of the time, not all the time, but the majority of the time, psychology has found this, this thing called the beautiful mess effect, which is that we have this disconnect between how we think others will perceive our weaknesses and how we perceive the weaknesses of others. In other Mm. words, you know, we say, oh God, I can't mention that thing. I'll look stupid. Everybody will hate me. Yet when other people open up and express their fears, their weaknesses, their concerns, we rarely judge them that harshly. We we, we rarely judge people that harshly, yet we think that we're going to be judged to the maximum degree, that we're going to get the mm-hmm. social death penalty. Mm-hmm. And that's just generally not the case. We, we kind of have an irrational fear of just how much blowback we could get for these things. And it's just usually not the case. 
Um, there's a passage in the book, and this is about marriage, where you say, quote, today's married men enjoy an average seven-year boost in life expectancy, but here's where I need to include the nasty word, however. If you're unhappily married, your health is likely to be notably worse than if you never got hitched at all. So, and this is one of the things I really love about the book is that, you know, this stuff is complicated and it often gets presented not so to make a, like <laughs> Malcolm Gladwell is the king of this. Like, I'm, I'm going to fit this into my incredibly, he's such a gifted storyteller, but it's like the, the science doesn't always like fit with the story. So it's a both things, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that that's the thing is, is that most of the stuff we see, you know, says, you know, marriage is good you know, get married. And they do a very simplistic kind of study where they stay, look at all the married people. They look at all the unmarried people and they say, look, the married people are happier. Marriage makes you happy. Mm -hmm. But that makes a statistical error that's, that's called survivor bias. If you want to determine if getting married makes you happier, then you need to include the divorced, the separated and the widowed people in with the people who got married, not the unmarried people. And when you do that, what you see is that marriage doesn't make you happier. A happy marriage makes you happier. Happy marriages make us extremely happy. There was a recent study out of Australia that showed prior research. We probably underestimated just how much a happy marriage makes you happy. However, what most people don't know is if you do marriage wrong, just how unhappy it can make you, you know, but Unha unhappily married people are far less happy than people who never got married at all. And what probably the probably the most the biggest indictment is that if you look at most of the happiness research, what you see is the human beings are extremely resilient. You mm -hmm. know, most things as terrible as you can imagine. Uh, after a few years, people recover and their happiness levels go back to baseline. There, but there are only two things that I've seen in the research consistently that put a permanent dent in your happiness. And that is extended unemployment. And number two is divorce. Literally makes a permanent dent. They did a research of the most stressful things that people ever encounter in their life. And divorce was number two. Divorce beat going to prison. Wow. You know, it's, it's really big. So, you know, so marriage, I'm, I'm by no means saying marriage is bad. I'm just saying you got to do it right. Marriage is more like going to Vegas, big wins, big losses. Uh, I will have been married, uh, 26 years on Thursday and I was kind of looking around for a quote and I found this Anne Lamott quote and I'm not quoting it exactly cause I don't have it in front of me, but it, the idea is that, um, happy marriages are where each partner thinks they got the better part of the deal. Yes. Yes. And I think that's it. I think that's it. So, and you talk about this in terms of uh, idealizing your partner um, and that that isn't necessarily a bad thing. No, it's a great thing. It is, it is, it's probably the biggest hallmark of love is, is that idealization. And the problem that most marriages have is that that idealization can fade. And it's, it's tricky. You know, it's tricky because the issue is when love happens to us, love is a passive process in the sense of we fall in love. Boom, you're there. This person is wonderful. You can't stop thinking about them. You idealize them. You don't have to do anything. It's kind of nice in that way. But over mm -hmm. the course of a long-term marriage, that can fade, and we need to be proactive about sustaining those feelings. And if people, a lot of people think, "Oh, I fell in love. This it's just going to stay this way forever," and it's like, no, we gotta we gotta roll up our sleeves and do a few things to kind of you know keep that ball in the air, uh, you know, because otherwise it's uh, kind of like ma marital entropy can uh, regression to the mean can set in if if we're not proactive about keeping each other happy.
You also say, I mean, this ties into storytelling because you say, quote, in the end, love is a shared story. And that's one that you're writing together. Yeah. And that is, and that is like, I mean, it might, it might sound pretty poetic, but it is actually so validated by the research. John Gottman is like one of his claims to fame is being able to predict, you know, uh, by listening to a couple, being able to predict whether or not they'll be divorced uh, in five years to the tune of like 90 plus percent accuracy. He can he can do this. And the funny thing is that it is not some incredible, you know, statistical computer. All he does is he asks the couple to tell him their story mm -hmm. and the story the theme that he looks for in that story is celebrating the struggle is do they say, yeah, we dealt with, we dealt with tough times, but Hey, we overcame them and it's been great. Or they laugh about the problems versus a couple that sort of emphasizes the difficulties. And yeah, I guess we're fine. I just listening to the story that each member of the couple talk has about their relationship. That is how he is able to predict the future of that relationship. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, I've been trying, well, I've been talking a lot on this podcast with various guests about essentially trying to de debunk this idea of the great resignation, because I think it's a meaning crisis. I think it's a, a meaning crisis that is rooted in um, loneliness um, uh, and, and stress. Um, and you talk about this, too, as, as you say, uh, quote, loneliness isn't about being alone. It's about not having feelings of meaningful connection. And I think that is writ large what's happening in our world today. I, absolutely. I mean, I, 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 I generally talk about stuff from an individual perspective. And in that section of the book, I do get into this issue of community and what we're dealing with. The loneliness research was fascinating. Faye Alberti at University of York is a historian, and she basically said before the 19th century, loneliness didn't exist. That sounded utterly ridiculous to me. Mm -hmm. But what you realize is that before the 19th century, we were all like embedded in religions, embedded in a nation, a community, a tribe, a village. You know, it's like we, we, we felt a part of something always, no matter where we were, who was around us. You know, we, we felt a part of something. And this aligns with a lot of the research. John Cacioppo is the leading researcher uh, on loneliness. And what he found is that lonely people don't spend, on average, any less time with people than non-lonely people do. Again, mm -hmm. Sounded ridiculous to me, but then you think about lonely in a crowd. We've all felt lonely in a crowd, yeah. you know, where you're surrounded. People are proximate. They're around you, but you don't feel a connection to them. So in the end, you know, spending time with people is fantastic. But the issue is loneliness is how you feel about your relationships. It's not necessarily being proximate to people. It's how you feel about those connections. And you can be away from people. You can be away from your wife. You can be away from your family, you know, on a business trip. And you don't necessarily feel lonely because you know they're there. They're thinking about you. They need you. You need them. But when, when we're surrounded by people, but we have no connection to them, then we don't feel good about our connection to other people. And it's deeply wired into us that for most of human existence, that's been very dangerous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we need other people. And this le le leads to a very profound section of the book that, that really had me thinking. Because, you know, when I was growing up and I was a deadhead and I did my thesis on the beat <laughs> generation, uh, like the idea of individual freedom meant everything to me. Yeah. And I'm reading this se section of the book and I'm like, oh my God, like, we have overrated freedom to the nth degree. It's the thing is that, you know, 
individualism, it's that Faye Alberti history uh, lesson I got, you know, freedom has been fantastic. You know, it, it's unlocked so much potential, but we still need to feel part of a community. We still feel that we need to feel needed. We need to need others. We need to be sacrificed for and to make sacrifice for others. It's so deeply wired in us. The analogy I make in the book is that, you know, even if all of your child's needs were provided for, as a parent, you would still want to do things for them. You would yeah. want to, even if they're well-fed, you'd still want to feed them. You still want to get them things. You you want to caretake for them. And Sebastian Younger had a had a great line, which I'm probably going to butcher, but to paraphrase, he he just said that, you know, human beings, you know, need to feel needed in the modern world, like makes us not feel essential. It makes us feel replaceable. And we, we, individualism has been powerful. We don't want to go back to the way the world was, but, but we may have lost something in the deal where we feel a part of a community where we do feel responsibility, responsibilities to others. Because the thing is, if, if we don't feel responsibility to others, then in the back of our heads, our brains know people don't feel a responsibility to us. When things don't, when things go sideways, there's nobody coming to help. And that's fundamentally scary to, to our lizard brains. Yeah. We had Sarah Rose Kavanaugh on the, the pod. She wrote a book called Hive Mind, and she cites some anthropological evidence that um, uh, uh, prior to, well, going back to the beginning of man, that both men and women were first caregivers. That's, yeah. that's how it started. And that, if, that's, if that's an understanding of an orientation, I, I think it's one that, that we might want to reclaim. Oh, I mean, this is this is the kind of thing where, you know, in the modern world, community is a is a, is a difficult, a really difficult issue. And I, I talk about in the book of what what has kind of happened in the past century of parasocial relationships. Uh, this this was research first done in the 1940s. And they were talking about television where people were using TV as kind of, you know, the junk food of, of socializing where, Hey, I can turn it on. I can turn it off. I can get this feeling that I'm connected, this feeling that there's other people. And there was actually a, a great study done during the writer's guild strike uh, around, you know, uh, 2008, uh, that some shows went off the air because there was a strike and the response of people emotionally was that they felt like they were losing their friends. It felt like a breakup, mm -hmm. you know, that we have become reliant, you know, in the 20th century, we became reliant on television for these relationships. Robert Putnam at Harvard documented uh, in his great book, Bowling Alone, how that led to the demise of community, those bowling leagues, those, those groups, you know, all of that stuff that we, that we now think of as kind of dated, but the thing is now in the 21st century, you know, we went from parasocial relationships with TV to parasocial relationships with social media. And I don't want to come out of somebody who just says, you know, Facebook and Instagram are, aw are awful. But that said, the issue is that most of that time that we spend comes out of the buddy budget. You know, most of the time that yeah. we spend on social media is time we could be meeting with people face to face with deeper connections. And we can we can kind of starve, uh, you know, having the junk food of social media when we could be having deeper face to face relationships with people. God, it's so true. And 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 look, I, I think the problem with social media is in how you're using it. Right. Exactly. And so it can't, it can't be a replacement. And we all know that everyone's presenting a side of themselves and, uh, in, in often, in often cases, an idealized self. Because the, the other thing I know about, uh, uh, cause I've heard this from people is that people who do 
uh, uh, moan and cry about their problems on social media. People don't like to hear that either. So it's like, <laughs> it, it feels like there's a, like that, that's very much a, a, a no win, but I think that the, the, the core idea, and I'll go back to basically, cause this is all in the proposal for my book, which is, you know, there, there is just, there is just no way that we do this by ourselves. So if that's true, I think, and I think it is, and I, I would, I, 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 I can't, I can't see the other side of that argument. Yeah. The other side of that argument is, is civil war, right? I mean, it's, it's <laughs> domination, it's fascism or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. So if that's the case, then we have to change and that is going to be hard, but it also means, I think it starts in many ways with our stories. So can we tell a different story that people are going to understand and then um, maybe make some changes in their, in their block? This is like, 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 let's, let's tackle it block by block because we can't, we can't do it one person at a time and we can't do it like by nations at a time. No. And that's, and that's the thing I, I think we forget about is that to your point, we have many stories that we use to connect people with. And these days, you know, the world is increasingly polarized and we see this very us or them. But the truth is we connect with people by many stories. Some people are people who work with you. Some people are people who live nearby you, people you grew up with, people who have similar interests, similar activities, similar religion. There are so many ways that we can find to tell a story of connection with other people. And we, we need to stop focusing on the very few and we need to be a little bit more creative about finding stories that, that bring us together, that that unite us to pull our similarities together with other people so that we can we can you know coexist but you know but go big go beyond coexist and and grow and and learn and not so much spend time infighting so speaking of which this leads me to my last question so we've been asking uh, folks who are returning to the pod who are you shared a yes and story to share a thank you because story, which is based on our work with Nick Epley at the University of Chicago, that if you want to stay inside a difficult conversation, a great technique is to thank the person, even if you disagree with them, and that sets off the gratitude part of the brain. And then the because becomes kind of crucial, which is you find something, anything underneath what they're saying that you're in agreement with. And we, we're, there's going to be a paper coming out next year that shows that this is very, very effective for people to you know, have those difficult conversations and stay inside them. Do you have a thank you because story for us? Yeah, I mean, it was it was funny. You mentioned earlier I was doing that uh, the hostage negotiation training and with the NYPD, and they, as you can imagine, they take it very seriously. I mean, it's uh, they've got this huge facility. It's like a it's like a airport hangar, and uh, and it's they bring in professional actors. And while I was there, I actually had to be on the phone, so it was a simulation of dealing with an actor, but that actor knows what to look for and what not to look for. And he's responding and he's pretending to be a hostage taker and he's, he's yelling and screaming. And my first reaction, just like we talked about the active listening, my first, this guy's yelling and screaming at me. My first reaction was to yell and scream back. And I, you know, I of course realized not supposed to do this, not supposed to do this, don't do this. And he's yelling at me. And I just kind of took, took a step back and I realized I can't, I can't be reactive here. You know, mm-hmm. let me, but, it, but what, what I was told to do sounded kind of crazy. It was just like, okay, you know, summarize what he's saying, label his feelings, you know, it's like, and wait for, wait for the exactly. And I was like, this sounds nuts. And, but he, and sure enough, I was just like, okay, so, so the police are outside. You're concerned about it. It's like, sounds like you're angry. And sure enough, it was like, he just, exactly. You know, this is, mm-hmm. and just, 
coming at the person not with a reactive negative tone these this is how they train this is what the, they've seen the the NYPD through decades of work this is how they get things done is to not respond with fire meets fire not respond with anger you know to acknowledge to appreciate like you're saying the thank you and mm-hmm. to kind of summarize let the person know we're on the same page we got it I see how you're feeling, you know, to kind of meet the person where they're at. And I think that that gets to the the fundamental aspects of what you're what you're talking about is is we got to we got to we got to respect where each other's coming from, show that we understand, not just say it, demonstrate it. And then we can we can work from there. Yeah. Human beings crave to be seen and heard. Yeah, that's it. Eric Barker, uh, the book is called Plays Well with Others, The Surprising Science Behind Why Everything You Know About Relationships is Mostly Wrong. Eric, thanks for coming back on the show. It was fantastic. Thank you. Getting to Yes And podcast is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about The Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com.
Sauvage 